The workers on the SB line for strikes are out of call. But Casey Jones, the engineer, he wouldn't strike at all. His boiler, it was leaking, and the driver's on the bump. And the engines and the bear, and they were all out of plumb. Casey Jones kept his junk pile running. Casey Jones was working double time. Casey Jones got a wooden medal for being good and faithful on the SB line. This is like the first time I've ever bought tobacco. Mm, Did you take two of those? You started chewing them? I don't chew them. I <laughs> just stick them in the, in, the, in the upper lip. These are the high-strength ones. Yeah, they're for cowards. <laughs> One of them's no good. Oh, my God. Listen, young whippersnapper. When I was young, you'd take a handful of zines, and you'd chew them right up and swallow them. Yeah, but look, you've given me probably like five of those, if not more, so I can't complain, but... Yeah. If I if someone hands you like a pack of cigarettes, you don't take two cigarettes. Yeah, that's probably true. Except right. that I I went with uh, my gut instinct, which was to take two. Yeah, I mean, and look, I want you to perform, and if that's what's going to take for you to do a good episode about settlers, <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, it's just I am a for the first time in my life, I am a tobacco user, in a, a tobacco sense. consumer. It's like the Zizek thing where he's like, everything is diet. I'm not going to do a Zizek where he's like, everything is diet now. Like, all of our sins are all, like, uh, chemical. I don't think it's diet. I, I mean, it's maybe it's better for you, but it's like, well, it's like, it's like nicotine cocaine. Yeah, almost. it's like denuded of its tobacco qualities. It just becomes like, yeah, it's like crack cocaine. But I can tell because I'm like, oh, he took two. That's oh, those, are, those are mine. <laughs> What's, what are you doing? I think that's the first step to addiction, man. I know. You're starting to worry about where your next Well, for me, from. you know I'm getting there when I'm starting to buy things. Yeah, you never buy anything. I know. You are. So that's. I really love when we were sitting preparing for the live show, and I, I was like, yeah, we bought a really nice mattress. It was a lot of money, and you're like, I know a guy. i get you a <laughs> yeah. free mattress right now. Five minutes, I'll be right. on the phone. I'll get you a fucking mattress. Like Kramer. Yeah, you are. It's good. It's charming, though. It's really endearing. I'm like a settler. You are like I'm a like, settler. Oh, you just take the land. Just <laughs> have it. Just, just take, take the just mattress take the from mattress. the hardworking mattress workers. Yeah. It's not like they exist. <laughs> they constitute a nation. Actually, you know, we're recording right now in a former mattress factory. True. And uh, I think you were there when when we went, we saw the ex- the exhibit of like the news articles pulled about this building when it was a doll factory and a mattress factory. Yeah. And one of them talked about Puerto Rican workers organizing against their boss and well, uh, shooting go. him actually okay. right on the corner well, over there here. There you go. The class struggle was popping. And off. we'll be talking a little bit about. Puerto Rico today. More about Puerto Rico and Puerto Rican nationalism in Puerto Rico. And the Philippines as well. And South Africa again. Uh, yeah. We're I mean, there's a lot to cover. Um, By the transitive properties of Jay Sakai's uh, settlers, <laughs> the Puerto Rican guys who shot their boss um, now own this property. If you constitute a nation and you're proletarian, which means you fight and you struggle, all of the everything that's embodied in there becomes yours. So this is a small part of Puerto Rico right here. And, you know, the history of Puerto Rico is, you know, you could make some comparisons there, but that's maybe beyond the scope of what we're going to talk about today. Maybe. You know, to what extent are are these oppressed nations also settlers? Yeah. um, One of the things, well, just before we go too far, welcome back to our series, to their white surprise, a Jay Sakai reading group. Is that what we call it now? I've just been calling it, like, 
settler reading settlers one two three four right. and then trying to come up with a good name after that i think to to, to your white surprise is a good one i mean that i'm not convinced fucking, that's in the book we haven't seen it yet so i don't know if it's, I it, think it's it might be like Vietnam. it might be like beam me up scotty you know it's not, it might actually be there never actually said huh? but i'm gonna be psyched when i finally see oh it. oh my god it's gonna be a banner day i'm gonna be sitting in bed <laughs> reading this shit with all my marginal notes and i'm gonna circle that a thousand times People can't see it because you're listening to a fucking podcast right now. But in case anybody doubted whether I'm taking this book seriously, Andy, look at my marginal notes. Yeah. Every single page. That's going in the Sean KB archives. In at the, the archives. Uh, you know what collection your archives are going to be in? Um, the Fails collection. Oh, what's that even a reference to? It just That's like a good. radical ephemera archive at NYU. Uh, so it's actually a good collection to be in. Oh, good. And it's spelled F-A-L-E-S. So where do we begin? We're on six. Yep. The U.S. Industrial Proletariat. This is the chapter where on uh, page 100, on page 152, we find out that there was a white industrial proletariat, that they did exist the whole time. The myth of... They didn't exist the whole time. They consolidated after the Civil War. Well, it was possible to be a white proletarian, apparently. But it took all the way up into like the late 19th and early 20th century. So the myth... It's kind of being <laughs> okay, torn yeah. apart, you know, on his own terms. Well, there are many myths, I think, about the white proletariat. I, he does. You're giving him a lot of credit because he says in the beginning that there is no white proletariat. And now mm. on page 153, there is a white proletariat. We'll come back to that because that's pretty important because it gets to Sakai's definition of proletariat, which interestingly. And I've, white. And white. Yep. Which interestingly, and a nation, which I think ties to uh, your definition of what a proletarian is. Which I may be backtracking on now, but let's, let's roll with it for a <laughs> let's second. Let's roll with it for a second. The first section, uh, page 143, is the communistic and revolutionary races. So in this the communistic one, races. The communistic races. This uh, subchapter here is about um, the new wave of immigration, which comes in the 1870s, 80s, 90s, and into the early 20th century, which are no longer... The put upon um, Irish hordes who um, get uh, famined, but then become oppressors themselves when they arrive in the New World. Or the German working class, which um, similarly gets um, booted from Germany in a series of failed revolutions and the consolidation of the German Reich under Prussia. And then they too become settlers by coming to the United States. There's a new gang in town. Poles, Italians, Poles. Slovaks, Serbs, Hungarians, Finns, Russians, etc. Italians. In fact, he Jews. uses... Jews. even. He uses the, uh, the terms from the time hunky and dago. Yeah, which, what's hunky? Hunky is a slur for... Originally, it was Hungarian. Get it? Hunky, uh-huh. Hungarian. But then I think it became like all like Eastern European. So a pole would be a hunky? Pole would be, I don't know if a pole, I think they'd be a pole. <laughs> I don't want to uh-huh. even say that word. That's a bad word. I think a Czech would be a hunky too. Okay. And I think a, Slovak, uh, a Slovak would be a hunky. So like this is a new wave of immigration that comes in. 
and as Sakai... They uh, couldn't call them Huns because those were the Germans. The Germans had already taken Hun. Although I don't think that that's until World War One. Okay. So hunky is like an old-timey slur. and that's We'll what, try to come up with like a chart of ethnic slurs over time to include in the show. Notes. I've got it in my head already. I just need to... <laughs> Very important part about being a white industrial proletarian. <laughs> yeah, that's right. This, uh, this new group comes and um, on top of the... Native-born Euro-Americans who have all the best jobs and are the foremans or becoming white-collar workers on top of the German and the Irish who are making their way into American society, quote-unquote settler society, and also getting like the higher-end skilled jobs in the spectrum. The uh, new jobs, which, as Sakai pointed out in previous chapters, had been, in some cases... Um, uh, filled by African-American workers, right? Uh, the, when they were kicked out, now all of a sudden the hunkies and the dagos and the Jews and the, everything else starts to make up the mass of this new American proletariat. It's not, of course, just that these people come. It's that the political economy of the entire country is changing after the 1870s, and you have the rise of uh, mass industrial uh, production, uh, the mass worker, uh, mechanization, automation. I don't want to interrupt you too much, but what is Dago? I know it's Italian, but like, what does that come from? I got no fucking idea, man. <laughs> I don't know where Dago comes that from. That sounds more like a, like an anti-Spanish slur, because it'd be like Diego. Maybe. Let me look it Let's up look right now. Up. Hold on. Pause for a Sakai second. Sakai should really <laughs> tell us <laughs> the origins of these slurs. <laughs> Dago slur. If, if, Give it as the answer to a Jeopardy question. Yeah. And so I can buzz in. What is a term? This is a term. <laughs> this term. Oh, man. It, this, is, this is such great, like, white ethnic racism because it's... Uh, this term uh, is from Diego, the Portuguese nickname for a deckhand. I reverse engineered it. After transforming Dago in English and becoming a common term for Spanish and Portuguese people, the slur expanded in use to refer to Italians and other Mediterraneans. So there's like various different. So there's probably some Italians being like, "I am not a Dago. I am not a. Da- yeah. I am a Petro or whatever." <laughs> yeah. Or whatever a stevedore is in Italian, like a stevedore or something like that. So yeah, it's uh, I mean it's class coded from the, the from the beginning, right? Because like a, a longshoreman at that time would have been a lowly uh, position, like an unskilled job, uh-huh. like the lowest of the low. So, huh. and of course, like who can differentiate between a Portuguese, a Spaniard, and a Italian, right? So the dago thing sticks. Um, After that brief interlude into Slur's Jeopardy, um, continuing on, you now have uh, these hunkies and dagos who are making up the industrial proletariat in the big cities. You have Jews and textiles. You have, um, you know, all sorts of uh, new immigrants, let's call them, right? And so these people constitute a white proletariat, an industrial proletariat. They come for the first time and become prole. And... um, Sakai takes us through them and the history of the IWW, but first he wants to take us to the uh, relationship between the settler uh, colonialists and uh, the new imperialism. So people out there probably know that in uh, 1848, the United States went to war with Mexico and took the whole 
southwest um, of the what is now the United States uh, from the Mexicans. Uh, and then in 1898, having thoroughly completed the, in, the manifest destiny, the internal colonization, uh, displacement, oppression, and genocide of the peoples here, uh, America went off to war uh, against the Spaniards in the Spanish-American War of 1898, uh, winning Cuba, uh, Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines in that enterprise. The uh, war was won pretty handily, but similar to Vietnam, and Sakai is right to point this out, it's very much like um, the Vietnam situation of the mid-20th century, which is that the Spaniards were losing control of their imperial subjects. Uh, there were revolutionary nationalist um, liberation movements popping off in Puerto Rico and in Cuba and in uh, the Philippines. And so America steps in to save basically those for the white race, for Western imperialism, for Western capitalism, and takes them over as subjects. And so you get, uh, uh, in the previous chapter, chapter five, right? Mm. We're talking about chapter six now, right? Yeah. It's really hot in here, everybody. It's, oh, my turned God. Off the New AC. York City is so hot It's 95 right degrees today. Yeah. Bear with us. So in the previous chapter, he talks about the opposition to imperialism, and he paints it out to be entirely in opposition to the inclusion of non-white people the subjugation of non-white people uh, as a pretext for excluding non-white people. Uh, and that's his understanding of the populist and anti-imperialist sentiments of the uh, late 19th, early 20th century. So I think we mentioned this last time. There's also a good piece in here about the, um, the similarities between um, the war struggle in South Africa and the settler struggle uh, in the United States. The um, couple of uh, little dings I got to get on Sakai here, because one of our theses for this um, project, or my, my running thesis anyway, is that this is lousy history, like from historiographical terms, but it's a very interesting polemic, and we're trying to understand why people jive with it now in the year 2023. Uh, really falls on his face here with the history. I understand he wants to use it polemically, but there's a couple things like he talks about the um, like the revolutionary, and he's talking about this in communist terms, like the revolutionary Katupunan, which is the Philippine independence movement, saying that it derived from uh, oppressed workers and peasants trying to overthrow their masters. If you look at what the Katupunan was, it was a secret organization uh, set up sort of like the Freemasons had 400,000 members to it, but the entire basis of the movement, its leadership, its intellectual core, uh, and ultimately really its politics, and this is against first Spain and then against uh, U.S. imperialism, is what you would expect from the time, from the late 19th century and early 20th century. It was a thoroughly middle-class movement of nationalist revolutionaries um, fighting for republicanism and nationhood. As some like colonial struggles tend to be. Yeah, 100%. But Sakai, and this is like the real slippage, I feel like, in this book, uh, and the reason why I think his um, focusing on nation slips into uh, ideology at best uh, and at worst, like, uh, complete, like, failure of analysis because he's making it seem as though the workers and peasants are trying to establish some sort of workers' state. 
that they're trying to make the nation, as he understands it, in the sort of Marxist-Leninist, Maoist mold, uh, a reality through their revolutionary struggle. And while, yeah, the shock troops of this were peasants and workers, it was a thoroughly like nationalist Republican movement. And so then we have to ask ourselves, what's the relationship between communism and middle-class bourgeois revolutions? I think there is one, but he doesn't make that clear. He kind of elides the difference between those two things. As though also, too, this is like a mid-20th century anti-colonial revolt, when this is a period completely before that. Yeah, I mean, that retelling history through a particular Maoist third-worldist lens leads to a lot of problems like this. And this is really the chapter where I think the, the wheels were starting to come off for me in chapter mm. five, and they, they've largely fallen off in this chapter. Um, and I, I can't imagine how annoying this is for you as a historian yeah, to amateur. read. You probably knew, well, I guess I'm an amateur historian too, but I think you're way better versed in this history than I am. It must've been, there must've been some like glaring problems for me. It's all like, well, I have never heard that angle of this before. Yeah. And it's something I'll have to look into, which is good, which is, you know, for me, I have no problem reading something like this because if I read a, a typical leftist history of which this is like a takedown of, yeah. they're going to say things that are untrue as well. And if I like go look at a second source, if I read Du Bois and then I read Foner, for example, there's disagreements yeah. and it's important to understand why they, these disagreements or discrepancies happen. And then if you do archival work, you'll see something totally different from what they were saying. So yeah. this is just the nature of reading history. Plus you've got like a very narrow polemic on top of that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're going to, so like we're going to be pretty critical. I think in, in this chapter, I assume just in general moving forward, but that said, I still am having a lot of fun reading this because these are angles and hot takes on, on a history that, uh, you know, some things I don't know anything about, some things I do know about, but I haven't seen from this perspective. So I still think it is helpful to, to read this stuff. I do. I think it is, too. But you have to, I think the reason so many people hate this book is some people read it and just take it as the truth. Yeah, and that's a real problem. And that's, I think, maybe the one thing that this little mini-series of us can do is to try to get people to think more critically, not just about this book, but history as well. When you say, like, oh, it must be, you know, wild for you to read this shit, it is, you know, and the reason I have all these marginal notes is because, like, I'm, I'm taking this book very seriously, and I have to read it in two different, at the same time, I have to read it two different ways, which is, like, trying to understand his conception, his argument, and the evidence that he brings to bear alongside, you know, the awareness that his is, like, a very particular viewpoint. He, he does some terrible his historiographical work here. Like he fucking does a cardinal sin of uh, history, which is he quotes angles, but not from the original text, which would one would imagine I'd want to go back to. You'd want to go back to him and be like, where did angles write this? He quotes it from Lenin quoting angles, right? You just don't do that, right? Mm -hmm. You have to go back to the original text you have to. Uh, you can't just take Lenin's, um, not just Lenin's quotation, but Lenin's take on Engels' quotation as a matter of course. You have to uh, analyze it. But it's worse than that, right? It's not just these little errors of historiography, right? He slanders the Communist Party of South Africa, 
Like he literally slanders them. And this is not a defense of the Communist Party of South Africa. And I am not an expert on South African history. But he makes it seem as though the motto, which is unite and fight for a white South Africa, or white South African communist state, he makes it seem as though that was the official line of the Communist Party of South Africa during the Rand Revolt of 1922, when that was a rallying cry of some white workers, some of them affiliated rank-and-file members of this very new Communist Party, but the leadership immediately distanced themselves from it. And Sakai just says, well, they, are, they were racist and they kept black workers out of their strike and out of the revolt, which is true. But then he never goes on to say what happens with the CPSA, which is that immediately in uh, 1924, so two years after that, they actually flip completely and they say that the, it's actually a, the Communist Party needs to fight a national uh, liberation struggle on the, on the part of native workers against the white imperialist colonialist forces. So they do an about face on that. And then in 1928, under guidance from the Comintern, the CPSA goes back once more and says that actually we need to create a multiracial, pluralistic, anti-colonial, um, <clears throat> anti-racist communist state in South Africa. And then, of course, too, the CPSA ends up 20 years later dissolving itself and going underground in order to support the African National Congress against apartheid, right? So, like, there's a way that he's telling this story, and it fits with what he's trying to do, which is to say that settler, settlerism fatally undermines the proletarian movement because of these, you know, striations it makes between different quote-unquote nations, right? Which is on its face true, but he cherry picks things and he leaves so much out that it makes it seem as though, for example, we'll see in the next chapter, the IWW was never serious about its like racial justice. Yeah, yeah, that was my big problem is that he's just, I mean, it's not only that he's, um, you know, sort of stretching some or like cherry picking some quotes, stretching some facts, uh, omitting a, a ton of facts, but He's contradicting him, his, himself, paragraph yeah. to paragraphs. Which, yeah. So even if you're, even if you're just like, I love Sakai, I'm going to believe everything he says. You just come out of it with mixed messaging, and that's for sure. You know, when I read the stuff about South Africa, I don't know anything about that. I didn't know that the the communist party of South Africa was singing about killing the Boers yeah. just a year later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's kill exaggeration, the but. Uh, but yeah, with the IWW, I did have some his I did know a thing or two about that, and so um, we'll get there. But uh, I, I read into that history, and it's way more complicated than he's making it out to be. To the point where it's it's closer to a lie the way he's yeah. putting this stuff. But I think the kernel of truth. But before you go there, uh -huh. I'm sorry. Stick like remember the kernel. I want to go one step further, and he does something which I think people will recognize from recent stuff over the last certainly three to 20 years or so, right? Is that Sakai, uh, a known communist, right? Actually, the sources that he uses for the South Africa shit is an anti-communist liberal historian Oops. who wants to give lie to the fact that there ever was like a, a multiracial communist working class movement within South Africa because he sees history through the lens of anti-racism, mm -hmm. through the lens of anti-communism. So Sakai, despite all his protestations, has to go to use like a rad lib from the 1960s historian in order to 
demoralize us, I guess, or to make sure that we well, don't learn any of the lessons. Just because a liberal wrote it doesn't mean it's not true, but it's I, it, it is a problem in a text like this, which is, you know, there he, he's using the history that's convenient for the narrative. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. Anyways, the kernel of truth you wanted to say. Yeah, it's just that. Um, White historically, white supremacy has been—I don't know if I'm using this word right—but overdetermining in the way these struggles play out. And so, even if you're an anti-racist organization like the IWW, and at times he admits as an anti-racist yeah. organization, yeah. there's only so much you can do in the context you're in. And so, uh, a lot of Chapter Six is he's going through the way the IWW dealt with certain challenges, including uh, the anti-Japanese. Uh, discrimination in, in the West, the emergence of World War One, mm-hmm. and uh, the integration of, of black industrial labor in the South and in the North, and and at times he's saying, "Well, the IWW tried this, but it didn't work." At times he's saying the IWW was chauvinist and and racist, um, and his overall message is that the IWW is just like the history of American labor. Uh, struggle in general, which is yeah. that it's white supremacist. Yeah, and I think that even the facts that he's laying out don't add up to that. Yeah, I mean, he has to impute bad faith to when leaders of the IWW, in theory and in phrase, and rank and file and members of the IWW through their history, and no one says this was perfect or they did it every time, stood up against segregation, you know, stood up and said, we admit any workers into our organization. We actually invite black workers and uh, Mexicano workers into our organization. That has to become bad faith. And it has to be along with the same narrative that at the end of the day, as like the the core at the center of American uh, class society, there is always and everywhere, even, uh, even within the IWW with their pretty phrases, uh, and nice talk about racial solidarity, that settlerism overcomes communism, right? The, the revolutionary spirit. Uh-huh. And um, in order to do that, again, he has to basically say that they were lying or that when the chips were down, you know, they ended up not standing uh, with the quote-unquote nation. One of the things that he points to, an interesting counterfactual, is he says that you know, during the high point of the IWW in the early 20th century, you had a revolutionary movement directly south of the border, the very poorest border with Mexico, with the Mexican Revolution. A complicated, but like very much peasant and worker affair. You much know? more complicated than he gives it credit because yeah, he's yeah. like, oh, these are non-white people. This is a, this is a real revolution. But if you look at the history of, of Villa, Villa and Zapata, these are not Maoist third worldists. No. These are liberal reformers. Liberal reformers, and there is like a peasant sort of syndicalist, sort of like proto-communist element to it. And there's a lot of different elements to it. He says, well, if the IWW was a seriously, serious revolutionary organization, they would have allied with the Mexican Revolution in the South. But that didn't happen. In fact, they never even mentioned it. They never even considered it. And then in the next paragraph, he says, well, except that Joe Hill did go down there and live. Yeah, he says that they did it individually and that Magan had connections to the IWW, but that the IWW never seriously involved itself. And I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I don't think as an organization they did, but that's holding them to a standard that I think is... um, ahistorical to say the least um and also he all i guess he points to the downfall 
of the IWW, which is that they're like, he calls them a purely syndicalist organization and says that <clears throat> in their minds, uh, these revolutions were secondary to fighting day-to-day battles and struggles and building uh, one big union. But, you know, the rest of uh, American society didn't even pay lip surface to any of that stuff. And, didn't, and segregation and apartheid, essentially, were so rife uh, across the country. He gives them some credit, but I don't think he gives them enough credit pushing against the grain uh-huh. of American society and the breakdown of class and race in this well, country. Here's where he really gives them credit. Um, so he, in, in five, he's talking about the emergence of the AFL and the, uh, the workers' movement. And the AFL was primarily founded by artisans trying to protect themselves from descaling. Also a syndicalist organization, just a right syndicalist one, as it turned out. And so... By the early 20th century, they are they are the labor movement, but they are conservative. They're you know uh, uh, you know actually I heard Catrone saying that Gompers was a Marxist. But, he was, yeah. uh, but nonetheless, they are sort of seen as villainous in certain ways. This period in history by by Marxist historians, and then the IWW emerges as a true proletarian mm-hmm. organization from its inception, internationalist against wage labor, anti-capitalist, anti-American. Uh, you know, how are they anti-American and like, are they anti-chauvinism? Sure. Yeah. They're, they're internationalists. They're international. And that internationalism has historic. And so there's a lot of contradictions politically within the IWW, which you would expect when you have a, a, a democratic worker organization of hundreds of thousands of workers, various trying out these politics for the first time. Yeah. Um, but it's important. And I'm reading the Mike Davis, uh, Presidents of the American Dream, and they they almost say the exact. They're writing the same time. They almost say the exact same things about how the IWW is such an important radical break, tactically, politically, on every level. But so there's obviously major political contradictions in the IWW in the sense that some of its membership are revolutionaries, uh, communistic or proto-communistic or socialistic, and some of them are just workers who see that these tactics. Uh, are good are, are going to win win for them they're mm-hmm. they're like the afl is not going to back them up the afl might be their enemy at certain points mm-hmm. and so it becomes a mass movement and um actually remembered we were talking with matt chrisman about a year ago and mm-hmm. he asked if if the iww ever won anything mm-hmm. and uh this the uh the marine worker local eight in philadelphia i i was reading about them for this and they did win something mm-hmm. so uh, Chrisman kind of blackpilled me on the IWW, but they did win yeah. at certain moments. Yeah. And more importantly, they built labor movements where there hadn't been yeah. previously. And organized workers at the AFL would never touch. And said, okay, we're not going to have a black union and a white union. We're not going to have separate meetings or, or, or seg committees, or whatever they're called. You're going to have to meet together. Mm-hmm. Even in Louisiana, mm-hmm. on this timber workers strike, which is uh, good to talk talk about. Um, but where I think he is correct, and this is sort of a conventional critique of the IWW, is there is a apolitical syndicalism at the heart of it, mm-hmm. which is that, yeah, you've got radicals in the group pushing the IWW in one direction or another. Um, but at the heart of it, it is just uh, their vision is just the workers take power and whatever they think goes because the workers need to come to power, which is not so far off from what we think. Yeah. But that does lead to a trajectory of well, the most privileged workers will take over and oppress a lesser group of workers. Yeah, I mean... Which is the history of American labor. It's the history of the IWW in terms of how the IWW gets 
folded into the rest of the labor movement instead of continues outside of it uh, for various reasons. And also this particularly reminded me of what I know about anarcho-syndicalism in Argentina, Mm. which was far more radical and revolutionary than the IWW. They actually had to uh, create an IWW-like organization in Argentina around 1909 called the the Cora Uh uh, to oppose the Fora because the Fora was like, we're going to take over Argentina and it's not going to be a state (laughs) because at that point, Argentina was almost entirely immigrant workers and they had no allegiance to anything called Argentina. There Mm. wasn't really Argentinian nationalism besides this like gaucho romantic history. So these European workers were like, there's not going to be any States in South America. There's just going to be workers running this whole area. Like some CNT. And so they had to create Argentinian nationalism as a way to uh, break it up. And you see this process in the uh, narrative about Americanization that he has here, where uh, the, the labor movement, especially its most radical elements are heavily European immigrants. um, Many of them in the IWW, but also in like the proto socialist parties, the proto communist parties. And, um, and the native wor- and the native workers, uh, American uh, American born workers, English speaking workers, um, end up having to struggle with these foreign born workers to try to make an a, a American sort of uh, center to these mm. unions, um, which was a a major uh, uh, schism within the formation of American the American left, socialist and communist. Um, but in Argentina and in the United States, you see the same process, which is as these European workers get involved in the labor movement here and start staying here instead of returning right. back yeah. to Europe and working seasonally, they become Americans. They become Americans. And as and this is an important way that Sakai ties this all together because he's focusing on something that's very fucking real. The question is, is whether settlerism explains it better than other historical processes right because there is like this core he calls it the euro-american settler core um of the working class he calls it the social basis for imperialism um he calls it like um the kind of um i guess it's like the the social substrate of that class collaborationist organ that is the united states um he blames that for processes that we also see in non-settler societies. And this is where, I think I mentioned this a couple episodes past in here. Um, settlerism goes a long way towards explaining the relative weakness, the reason why the IWW was an attempt uh, in under American circumstances, very unique circumstances, to try to continue an older tradition of industrial unionism that had died out in the country. Um, against you know the craft unionism of the afl it takes its particular um uh character because of a lot of reasons but one of them is the large landmass of the united states and the migrant nature of work in this country for like the lower stratum of unskilled workers but also as he rightly points out the specific immigrant nature of the particular um workers who constitute the mass uh, industrial working class if you're going to say that settlerism is to blame for this um, uh, Americanization, uh, or another way to say it is uh, embourgeoisification of the American working class, then you're going to have to find a way to explain 
what happens in Germany uh, under the SPD leading up to World War I and the nationalist Fuhrer uh, that leads the working class Marxist party of that country to align with its own capitalist class uh, in World War I against the French working class. You'd have to explain it in France. You'd have to explain it in Russia. You'd have to explain it in Great Britain, none of which have the same sort of settler dynamics that he points to. What, he's, what we see now in retrospect, maybe even more in retrospect than Sakai could have in the 1980s, is a process of not just Americanization, that's what it looks like in the United States because this is an immigrant country with a, people speaking a lot of different languages coming from a lot of different places, but in a broader sense, it's an embourgeoisification of the working class and working class movements. Looking back on it, and we look today and we see that there are many members of um, the African-American working class, certainly the Latino working class, and the Asian working class um, in the United States now who have been Americanized, right? Which is another, say, they, another way of saying they've become embourgeoisified, right? They've lost that whole entire rubric of qualities that Sakai talks about as nationhood. They have now become Americans. They've now become, quote-unquote, middle class. They've become themselves settlers. So the question we should ask ourselves is, is what he's describing with the, what we see as the deformation of the workers' movement towards like a bourgeois proletariat in the United States, is that just settlerism, or is that part of a larger process? Is that part, part of a process of development of the capitalist economy and the class system that's leaving behind the social basis for something like the IWW and giving rise to um, a whole different terrain of struggle that we fight on today. Another way of saying that is in 1983 when he's writing this, he's writing at the tail end of a whole series of anti-colonial movements that are intricately connected with um, working class revolutionary movements within the metropole for either civil rights or for communism. With the end of that, right, with the death of that whole horizon of national liberation struggle, of um, the rise of the black belt in the South, um, overthrowing the, um, or forming like an independent black nation, proletarian nation in the South, with that being not on the table anymore, does it even make sense to talk about that in these terms? With the rising support of uh, black and Latino workers for Trump and the MAGA movement, right? So in Sakai's strange definition of proletariat, right? Very weird definition of proletariat. As we saw in the first chapters, the black slaves who don't own their own labor power and are tied to the land through oppression and force uh, and enslaved, they constitute a proletariat. The Chinese workers who are brought over by labor bosses in their hometown, uh, quote-unquote, the coolie system, and driven to death, exhaustion, and hunger, and then eventually kicked out of the United States, they constitute a nation, and they are the proletariat. When the Hungarian worker comes, when the hunky comes, and he gets his industrial factory job in Chicago in the steel mill or whatever, on the lower rung, not the skilled one, but like the unskilled work, he is a proletarian, right? His definition of proletarian, then, is not a scientific one, as he would like to claim. It's instead a political one, right? There's no scientific, like, social relations um, characteristic 
to the way that he uses proletarian. A proletarian is that is that person who is a direct producer who struggles. Mm, right. Right. And yeah, and that that is sort of how I've used it in my writing and on this show for a while. And then he goes one step further and argues that it is actually like within these communities, these linguistic, ethnic, racial communities, such as they're constituted historically, that then become the basis for a national liberation struggle. So my question to Sakai and to the followers of Settlers would be why not all the way through Chicago, through Gary, Indiana, parts of the country there in the Midwest, why not a hunky belt? Why not fight for a hunky Soviet? Why would you not fight for self-determination for the Czech immigrants? For the or Hungarian, Appalachian people. Or Appalachian which people. Is closer to a, something that happened historically. Or Jewish people, you know, in the early 20th century in New York City. Or Italians in New Jersey. Because if you're going to argue that... The worker said to Casey, won't you help us win this strike? But Casey said, let me alone, you'd better take a hike. Well, Casey's wheezy engine ran right off the wheezy track, and Casey hit the river with an awful smack. Hey folks, Sean KB here. Uh, Just a reminder that our show relies on your support. So if you enjoy what we do and you want to hear more excellent bonus content, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash theantifada. It's cheap, there's a ton of content, and it would mean everything to us. So thank you, and we'll see you behind the paywall. Musicians are on strike. You can get a job a scabbing anytime you like. Casey Jones got a job in heaven. Casey Jones was doing mighty fine. Casey Jones went scabbing on the angels just like he did to workers on the SB line. Well, the angels got together. They said it wasn't fair for Casey Jones to go around a scabbing everywhere. The Angels Union number 23, they sure were there. They promptly fired Casey down the golden stair. Casey Jones, I went to hell applying. Casey Jones, the devil said, oh, fine. Casey Jones, get busy shoveling sulfurs. What you get for scabbing on the SD line?